The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. But it really was a question of who gets to use this device and who gets control over what they can see and what they can't see and, and who's in charge of a woman's body. This is Science for the People, and later on in the show, Rochelle will explore the cold, frightening world of the speculum with Rose Everleth. But before that, let's take a look at the origin of the pill. Yes, that pill. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host, Desiree Shell. I'm joined today by Jonathan Eig, the New York Times best-selling author of four books, who is currently working on a biography of Muhammad Ali. Before writing books, Jonathan worked as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, Chicago Magazine, the Dallas Morning News, and the New Orleans Time-Picayune, and his work has also appeared in the New York Times, Esquire, and the Washington Post. He's appeared on NBC's Today Show, NPR, and in the Prohibition documentary made by Ken Burns for PBS. But what really impresses people is that he once appeared on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. He's here to talk about his newest book, The Birth of the Pill, How Four Crusaders Reinvented Sex and Launched a Revolution. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks, Desiree. Okay, so let's set the stage here. It is 1950 in the USA. What is life like for a woman? Well, that's a big, broad question, but um, it's very different from what it is today, I can tell you that much. Um, the average age at which a woman got married was 21 in 1950, and the average age at which she started having children was uh, 23, and she, on average, would have uh, 3.7 children in, in the United States. Uh, so very different. The, the chances that she'd go to college were, were less than 1 in 10. Um, the chances that she would um, enter the workforce were less than, than 1 in 5. So um, it was a very different universe for women. And that's just in the United States. In, in other countries, it was in many ways even more difficult. And what about sex? Sex was um, considered in many ways a woman's responsibility to, to provide sex for her husband whenever he wanted it. And, of course, sex um, very often led to pregnancy. Um, and, and it was really seen as part of the woman's role to be the, that, um, that vessel for, for, for children. And the, the woman's role was primarily in society to, to bear and raise children. Womanhood really equaled motherhood. Um, in the 1950s. So sex was something you engaged in only if you were really prepared for the strong possibility that you get pregnant because the forms of birth control that were available were, were really inefficient. Um, oftentimes they were difficult to obtain. Um, they usually required the cooperation of a man, either, you know, your, your partner in sex or the doctor who would prescribe, um, you know, a diaphragm or an IUD. So women really did not have control over their own fertility. Um, and in many ways, you know, felt helpless to control their own bodies. They were having more children than they wanted to, and sometimes more children than they could than they, they felt like their bodies could handle or their or their family budgets could afford. It was um it was a very different different and difficult time to be a woman. Now, obviously, uh, not everyone was happy with the status quo. So, enter Margaret Sanger. Tell us about her. 
Right. Well, obviously, um, there were a lot of problems with this scenario that I'm describing where women are, are feel powerless to control their own bodies. Um, you know, it was it was it, one of, there were only a, a couple of ways really to avoid pregnancy. One was to avoid sex, of course. The other was to um, undergo abortion, which was often dangerous um, because the abortions were were illegal. Uh, they were performed by sketchy doctors and um, often resulted in in, in great danger and, you know, sometimes death to the, to the woman undergoing the abortions. Um, <clears throat> so Margaret Sanger and, and some other people had the idea that this ought to change, that there ought to be a better way. And, and beginning in the early part of the 20th century, around 1915, she began opening birth control clinics, um, trying to give women education about, about reproduction, at least helping them understand um, what they could do to avoid uh, having children when when they didn't want to. But the problem was that she could educate, but she couldn't give them any useful tools. Um, as I said in the book, um, she it was like educating people about nutrition without giving them anything healthy to eat um, because condoms and diaphragms and, and, um, and IUDs really uh, were, were not effective. Um, oftentimes, um, it was like, you know, playing Russian roulette. It might work, it might not. So she dreamed of something better. She dreamed of something biological, something, you know, scientific. And she, she talked about this miracle tablet. If, if only there were a miracle tablet that a woman could take to turn off her reproductive system when she didn't want to get pregnant. Um, but of course, everybody told her this was, you know, the stuff of science fiction, that it would never happen. But she kept at it. She kept hammering away at that idea of this miracle tablet for 30, 40 years. Um, you know, even as she became an old woman, she, she still believed that that, that that was the only way that it would really make a difference in women, women's lives is if they could come up with something truly scientific and, and effective that women could take, um, you know, quietly without necessarily with the uh, knowledge of the men involved, um, something that was completely reversible, something that you didn't have to fumble with right before the act of, of sex. Um, but you know, like I said, most people thought it was she was dreaming. And she was an absolutely remarkable woman, but even, and, and quite the radical, I should say, but even after reading your book, I'm still not clear as to whether she was primarily fighting for women's economic and political equality, and sex was an aspect of that, or if in her eyes, the underlying problem for women at the time was that they couldn't thoroughly enjoy sex for its own sake with a specter of potential pregnancy looming, like, looming over their heads. Thoughts? I don't think she ever felt any need to separate these things. Um, she believed that the emancipation of women um, needed to, to include all of that, that you know, women should be entitled to enjoy sex, um, just like men were entitled to without the fear of getting pregnant. Um, she believed that if men and women could enjoy more sex, the world would be a better place and a happier place. And she believed that women would have more opportunities, that they'd have better health, that they'd, um, their family budgets would be, would be more stable. They would be able to go into jobs they never had before. They would become, in many ways, equal to men. And, and she really thought that this pill, this, this dream of hers could do all those things. And I don't think, I mean, it, it probably began with sex for her because she loved sex and she was, you know, came out of that, that era when Freud was a big influence on people and, you know, Freud was making it seem as if the sex was, was something the body needed as much as food. And, and she very much grew up in that environment. But I, I think, um, it was never limited to that for her. 
Now, it's it's a bit ironic for someone who was so against traditional gender roles, uh, but the fact that she married Rich enabled her to spread those ideas, right? Yeah, it's just another area in which she is so complicated and, and so fascinating. Um, you know, she's this firebrand, this absolute radical, and she marries a wealthy Republican, the man who um, founded the, the 3M oil company, uh, you know, a product that every American had in their garage to to, to grease their, their, their bicycle chains and their squeaky doors um and and she used his money to to fund her 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 birth control research at a time when she was you know having some some she founded uh what what would become planned parenthood but she was having some some uh, difficulties with planned parenthood they weren't on the same page and she really went off on her own and, and had to find um ways to undertake this research project um without any traditional support so um the fact that she was married to these, this wealthy guy and, and had access to to more wealthy donors was just part of the, um, you know, the fascinating picture of her life. This is Science for the People, and my guest is Jonathan Icke, author of the book The Birth of the Pill, How Four Crusaders Reinvented Sex and Launched a Revolution. Okay, so so research on the pill. Enter Gregory Goodwin Pincus. Who was he? Pincus is uh, one of the world's leading experts in mammalian reproduction. He's a biologist. Um, right out of graduate school, he gets hired by Harvard. He's at the top of his profession. He's doing what some research that Harvard considers some of the most important research ever undertaken at this um, at this great university. He's studying um, in vitro fertilization in the 1930s, and he, he brags to the press, not just to the scientific press, but to the mainstream press, that that someday we'll be able to use test tubes to have children, and this will dramatically change the the entire nature of reproduction. It'll change the balance of power in relationships. And he's incredibly excited about this, as, as you can imagine. Um, but it doesn't go over very well in, in the public. It sounds scary to folks. And, uh, you know, this is right after Brave New World has been published. And, and there are these, um, you know, laboratories for babies, uh, these factories for babies in, in Huxley's novel. And, and Pincus's uh, description of, of IVF scares people. And, and Harvard decides to deny him tenure. He, he can't find work anywhere after that. He's too controversial. Um, he's also, um, you know, fairly radical and, uh, he's Jewish at a time of anti-Semitism in, in the academic world. So he, he has no choice really. He feels like to, um, to start his own scientific laboratory. I mean, he, he never, he would never dream of, of giving up his, his scientific career because he believes he's, he's a great genius and he has important contributions to make. So, um, instead of taking a more humble job, he goes and starts his own scientific foundation, um, in Worcester, Massachusetts. And he goes door to door in the community asking people for donations, $20 here, $50 there. Um, and uh, he creates the Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology and begins doing research there on, on anything that he can get funding for. He's really, um, you know, fairly desperate. But when he meets Margaret Sanger and Sanger says she's had this dream, by now it's 1950 and, and we're beginning to understand how hormones work. We're beginning to, scientists are, are beginning to try to use hormones to control the functions of the human body. And he meets Margaret Sanger at a cocktail party in New York, and Sanger tells him about her dream of this this magic tablet, this miracle tablet that would allow women to turn on and off their reproductive systems. And um, she says she's never been able to find anybody who would work on it. Pincus says, oh, I can do that. I can give you that that, that pill. Just uh, how much money have you got? And uh, <clears throat> you can just imagine Sanger's response. You know, her jaw must have dropped because everybody's told her this is impossible. And here Pincus says, no, no, it's not impossible at all. It's quite simple. Uh, how much money have you got? And uh, she says, "Well, I could I could start with a couple thousand dollars." And and Pincus agrees to get to go to work for um for really just a you know a, a pittance 
because he believes that this is um, something he can do, and he can show the world that he that he really is the the brilliant scientist that uh, that he's that that, that, that uh, who's been snubbed by the by the establishment. Well, what was his perspective on women and sex and such? I don't think he cared much about it, to be honest. I mean, he 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 loved his wife, and he had a daughter, um, and. Uh, but, but he was very interested in reproduction, but it, 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 he had never worked with humans. His experiments had all been related to animals before, and he'd been mostly interested in how um, better reproduction um, could, could help make farms more efficient. So he was not coming at this from a feminist perspective at all. Um, he would come around to that later. Um, I think he was mostly intrigued by the possibility and the, the scientific puzzle. Could he make this work? Could he figure it out? Because he... He understood very quickly off the top of his head, really, how a birth control pill might function. And, and then it just became this, this burning desire to prove that he was right. But they, they both well understood that developing the pill would be highly controversial, right? Oh, sure. And um, I think the fact that they were both outsiders with nothing to lose really um, made that less daunting. I don't think they could have dreamed of doing this. If, if, if Pincus had still been at Harvard, he would have said, no way, I got too much, you know, I've got a job to protect. I'm not going to take on something like that. And, you know, what are the chances that it was going to even be manufactured, that any, that the government would approve it? It seemed like slim to none because, I mean, birth control was illegal in 30 states and federal laws were still on the books saying that you couldn't even disseminate information about birth control. So how are you going to test a pill like this? How, how could you possibly expect the government to approve it? What were the chances that it would ever reach the market? It, it seemed like a, a foolish um, a, a, a endeavor. And I think the only way you would undertake it is if you really had nothing to lose and, and you know, why not give it a try? And that's, and that's where Pincus was in, in his career. Well, when word started to get out that that's what they were doing, what did people think? Well, it was interesting because when word got out, a couple of different things happened. One, the Catholic Church um, began to to grow concerned, like, what is this they're doing here? Drug companies um, were sort of watching carefully to see um, what they were doing, but but they were unwilling to, to, to get involved and make an investment. But the most interesting response was that Pincus and Sanger and the others involved, um, John Rock and Catherine McCormick, began getting letters by the hundreds from women who heard about this research and said, we heard you're working on a pill. Um, I need it now. I, I, I've got I've got 11 children, and uh, you know the last three um, you know, were you know were born with these with these terrible birth defects. I really don't think I should be having any more children. Um, what can what can you do to get me this pill immediately? And and it was it was not just um, you know sort of interesting to them and eye opening to them. It was also um, important because it said that you know there was a market for this. There was demand for this, and. When they realized that that women were, would clamor for for this, they it, it pushed them to to get more aggressive in their research and to try to to speed this up and to try to find more partners to, to to really get it done. And it helped some of those drug companies get off the fence and to see that you know this was something that might be might be profitable for them. So uh, the response to their early reports of their research, even though they they'd hardly tested it on any women at that point, because like I said, it was it was difficult to um to find test subjects. Um, the response was very important. And I think that's, you know, the, the women in, in American women who sent that message that, you know, <clears throat> this may be controversial, but we want it. That was a very important and very important driver in this in this story. Well, but aside from the women who obviously wanted it, who else was in support of their research? I'm I'm talking specifically about eugenicists. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, um, the eugenics movement was another one of those great controversial um, things about Margaret Sanger because maybe great isn't the right word because um, it's it's you know part of the, the dark side of her story. Um, the eugenics movement, you know, um, believed that 
poor minority families should be having fewer children and that wealthy educated um, families and especially white families should be having more. And they set out on a campaign to encourage um, to encourage that trend. And, and one of the ways they did that was by funding um, birth control clinics in poor communities by paying women to be sterilized. Um, and and um, in Puerto Rico, for example, um, anytime a woman went in to have a baby, she was offered free sterilization. And, and, and those, those free sterilizations were often paid for with grant money from the eugenics movement. So uh, they were a very controversial um, uh, movement, although in the 1930s, they really uh, were, were, were part of the mainstream and, and, and a lot of intellectuals um, took interest in this. Um, and Sanger was one of them, and she saw the eugenicists as useful allies. She thought that, that these were people who could really um, further her cause because they shared a lot of the same interests. And, uh, and she, you know, she very much formed a, a, an alliance with them. And, and, um, and that was one of the you know, sort of the strange bedfellows that she, would, she, she worked with. That, that seems additionally odd to me because Sanger sort of started out working on behalf of the poor, correct? Yeah, it, it, it is a strange um, alliance because Sanger opened her clinics in poor communities because she wanted to help those women. She, she wasn't interested in, in population reduction among the poor. She was really interested in helping these poor women have better lives. But there was some overlap, right? They were the the, um, the eugenicists were interested in helping those communities too, just and, and providing birth control just for different reasons. So you know, for Sanger, it's, it raises a fascinating um, you know ethical question: Do you do you work with them because they they can help um, provide you money and, and get some of the things done that you want done, or do you avoid them because you disagree in principle with why they're doing it? And and she chose um, to work with them. She thought it was in the long run. Um, more helpful than harmful. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm talking with the author of The Birth of the Pill, Jonathan Eig. Okay, so let's talk about the research. Uh, how did Pincus begin developing the birth control pill? Well, I should say first that his idea for how this would work was very simple. He said to Margaret Sanger, off the top of his head, really, um, a, a woman already has a, a natural form of, of birth control. When she's pregnant, her body releases this hormone called progesterone, and that tells the body not to release any more eggs. So she won't get pregnant again, because if she got, if, if another egg was released, it might, uh, it, it would endanger the, the first uh, child who was um, taking shape. And um, if we could just give women progesterone, her body would think it was pregnant and she wouldn't get pregnant. Um, it, it seemed, you know, so simple, so elegant to him. So the first thing to do was to test progesterone. And, and they began by testing it on rats and rabbits. And, and they found that sure enough, when they injected the, the rats and rabbits with progesterone, they, they did not ovulate and they did not get pregnant. So the next thing was to try it on women. But Pincus had no idea how to work with women. He'd never uh, done any experiments on them. He was a, a biologist who worked in labs. Um, so, so what do you do? Um, and, and this is where the fact that these were all outsiders, that they were, they were rebels again, become so important that, um, they could try things that you could never have pulled off if you were, uh, you know, at a drug company or if you were at Harvard. So Pincus called one of the best known gynecologists in the country, uh, Dr. John Rock, who worked at Harvard and said, hey, I have this idea about, um, progesterone. I think it could work as a contraceptive. And I wondered how you would feel about, Perhaps um, giving it to some of the women in your clinic who are who are being treated for infertility, so they're trying to get pregnant. But we'll give them progesterone. It will it will absolutely make sure they can't get pregnant. And maybe when they're done getting when they're done with the progesterone, their their bodies will have sort of a rebound effect. And um, having been rested for a while, their reproductive systems will have been rested, and they'll they'll have a chance of getting pregnant after that. But it would give us a chance to to really test whether our theory is right that the progesterone shuts down ovulation. 
And um, Rock said, oh, well, I'm already doing that. <laughs> I'm already giving them progesterone because I really thought it might work. Um, so Pincus was was ecstatic uh, because, it, you know, here here's proof that progesterone is, at least isn't killing anybody when, when you give it to, to humans. Um, John Rock has already tried it as a, as a fertility treatment. So they, they, they partner up and they, they begin giving it to more women, um, telling them that it's a treatment, that possible treatment for infertility, but in, but at the same time gathering data to prove that, that progesterone, um, stops ovulation in women. You have to tell us some more about John Rock. Rock he's is fascinating. Yeah. He's, he's one of the great heroes of this story and he's a, he's a white haired, uh, handsome, you know, he looks like something straight out of Hollywood, um, you know, central casting. This very calm and confident man. He also happens to be Catholic and, and a devout Catholic, goes to mass every day. But he has come to believe as a gynecologist, seeing, seeing many poor women in his practice that, and seeing many Catholic women in his practice in Boston, that, uh, that the Catholic Church is wrong about it, in its approach to birth control. He thinks that women and men should be able to have sex, um, as part of a good marriage, not just to make children. And he thinks that women should be able to have abortions when, when their life is in danger or even their health is, is threatened. And he thinks that women should be able to use birth control because, um, sex is, is, is a, is an important part of, of a strong marriage. And he just, you know, has become, he's, he's still faithful to his church, but he believes that in this one area, the church is wrong. So, so when Pincus comes to him and asks him if he'd like to work on this birth control project, he doesn't hesitate. He's, he sees this as an important opportunity to really um, spread the word and, and perhaps offer the world a better form of birth control and, and, and maybe convince the Catholic Church that it's time to, to take a more modern approach to this issue. So he signs on and he ends up running the clinical trials for, for the birth control pill. And, and Pincus, um, you know, is, is, is the man doing the science. Um, Rock is the man really putting it into practice and seeing how it works, seeing what kind of uh, side effects it might have, seeing what kind of doses um, are appropriate. And, and they become this very um, sort of odd um, team uh, with Pincus, um, Rock, um, Sanger, and of course, um, the fourth person is Catherine McCormick, who's funding all of this, agrees to pay for the entire project herself single-handedly. And we're going to talk about McCormick in a second because she is also amazing. But Sanger did not want John Rock involved initially, did she? No, Sanger was raised a Catholic but became very, very um, prejudiced about Catholics. She she felt like the church um, was was in many ways responsible for the the horrible way her her her, her father was treated at, um, and and. And the way, and the fact that her mother, um, had really died from, from having, giving, having too many pregnancies. Um, she blamed the Catholic Church for a lot of this. And, and she just didn't trust John Rock because he was a Catholic. Um, eventually she came around and saw that he really meant what he said and that he was devoted to the cause. But at first she, she really didn't want him on the team. Well, and it was really Pincus who pushed it. Yeah, Pincus said, we need this guy. Um, Pincus, because he was Jewish and he'd been the victim of anti-Semitism, really um, was the, some of the other candidates for, for running the clinical trials were Jewish doctors. And he, and he felt like he didn't want to see this attacked um, for, for, for re- religious reasons. And he thought that having a Catholic would be a great asset because it would give them um, you know, some respectability. And, if, you know, if a Catholic doctor is willing to work on a birth control pill, then surely um, you know, a drug company um, should be willing to take this on should be courageous enough to to get behind this and and it would send a message to to catholic women all over the country that that this was okay that, that this was something that they that, it, that they should think about trying 
Okay, we have Sanger with the passion. We have uh, Pincus with the vision. We have Rock with credibility, which is nice. And and you mentioned Catherine McCormick, and she's the one with the money. Tell us about her. Yeah, another one of these just like great characters. You couldn't make these people up. Um, Catherine McCormick is, is born. Uh, Catherine Dexter McCormick is born into a very wealthy Chicago family. She marries into an even wealthier family, the McCormicks. Um, she marries Stanley McCormick, who's the son of Cyrus McCormick, the man who invented the Reaper and, and founded International Harvester. He's one of the wealthiest men in the world, and their marriage is like something out of a fairy tale. Um, they, they are just this unbelievably beautiful couple. Um, but on their honeymoon, Stanley goes mad and um, has to be institutionalized for the rest of his life. He's, he's, a, he's a schizophrenic. He's dangerous. He's particularly um, dangerous around women. And um, Catherine can can never really spend any time with him again. He's 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 locked up in a in a private asylum that they build um, in California, perhaps the nicest asylum ever built, uh, where he's got his own team of doctors and nurses. There's a you know, Catherine uh, who's a graduate of MIT, one of the first women in the world with a science degree from MIT. Um, sets up her own laboratory and hires doctors and scientists to research schizophrenia and to look for cures. Um, she devotes most of her adult life. To, to caring for and, and seeking a cure for her husband. But when he finally dies um, and leaves her $750 million, um, she's got to decide what to do next with the rest of her life. And she's you know now in her, in her 70s. Uh, but she decides that she wants to go back to work with Margaret Sanger, whom she had met when they were both young women. And she, she contacts Sanger and says, where are we on this search for a birth control, uh, a scientific birth control method? And Sanger updates her, and 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 she says, "I'm in. Uh, I'll pay for whatever you need." And and not only pay for it, but she wants to be involved. She wants to um, keep an eye on Pincus and 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 visit the lab and make sure that this doesn't make these men don't somehow hijack this process. Uh, she doesn't want to see it turned into any kind of a birth control plan for for men. This has to be for women, and she has very specific ideas about how it should work. And uh, she she becomes the the fourth and and you know very important player in this in this team. That's what's so interesting. She she didn't just, uh, you know, we see this often now as people hand over money and they call it a day, but she was so interested and involved in a very hands-on way with, with I guess, for all intents and purposes, project management. Yeah, she really was. And and she was involved in every step of the way. Um, she, you know, helped build laboratories and she and she would visit and talk about how they should be designed. And, you know, when, when John Rock was uh, forced to retire from Harvard because he reached the you know mandatory age of retirement, she wanted to make sure that the work did not slow down in any way. So she she, she spent a fortune building him a new laboratory right across the street from his old lab at Harvard. Um, she was a, an incredibly forceful, dynamic woman. And I think in part because of her age, she was constantly pushing faster, faster, faster. She would not allow any stalling. Anytime they hit a little roadblock, she would just say, go around. We were not waiting for this problem to be resolved. And and I think that, was, that turned out to be hugely important because... They didn't really know it, but they were racing. Um, you know, if, if the Catholic Church got wind of, of what was really happening here, how close they were to figuring this out, uh, it all could have come crashing down. Um, there was another uh, piece that they could not have imagined was going on, but that's that the thalidomide disaster was was beginning to take shape. Uh, people in Europe were realizing that this drug, thalidomide, was was causing horrible birth defects. And when that was finally, um, uh, when 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 the public was finally alerted to it, uh, it became a lot harder to get new drugs approved. So that if that had uh, happened sooner, or if the pill had been delayed even by a year, um, it would have been much more difficult to to get it past um, the, the federal government's approval process. And we'll be back after these messages with more of Jonathan Eig and his book, The Birth of the Pill, on Science for the People. 
Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and today I'm here with Jonathan Ike, the New York Times best-selling author of four books, Luckiest Man, Opening Day, Git Capone, and his newest book, The Birth of the Pill, How Four Crusaders Reinvented Sex and Launched a Revolution. Now, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times that, uh, that one of their biggest issues in, in trying to get this pill out was, was trying to find test subjects for the clinical trials. Yes, um, birth control was illegal, so you couldn't do this openly. Um, and in Massachusetts, where they operated, there were there were some especially strict laws, so they had to be a little sneaky about it. And um, remember, there was never a drug like this before. This was a drug for healthy people, and it was not meant to cure a disease. It was not meant to ease a pain, and it was it was you know it was meant for healthy young people, women who um, were entering, in many cases, just entering the, their, 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 their you know, time of fertility. They might want to have children again. So if, if this did something harmful, if this ended up um, rendering them sterile or, you know, causing birth defects, they were they were in a lot of trouble. Very high risk here. Um, but Pincus was so convinced that, that it just had to be safe because it was natural. It was an, it was a hormone that the body already released. So how could it do any harm? So he was he was supremely perhaps, you know, overconfident. Um, so to find test subjects, as I mentioned, they began with um, these women who were seeking treatment for infertility. And then they, they went to um, some of the insane asylums around uh, the Boston area and administered it to women there. And they tried it on men too, just, I don't know, just for, just to see what would happen, I guess. Um, but these women, um, were not even told what the, what, what the pill was for. They, they certainly weren't asked to give consent. Um, and that was, that was typical of, uh, in the 1950s. There was no requirement that you, that you, that you get consent for, for these kinds of experiments. Um, but they just, they were just trying to find as many women as they could to, 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 to get the numbers that would show that this really was stopping ovulation and that the, the side effects were not, were not too bad. Um, the side effects were pretty bad and that became a big issue. They, you know, the, the, they were giving doses of 10 milligrams of progesterone, which is much, much higher than they needed to, but they wanted to make sure that nobody got pregnant. As a result of that, there were terrible complaints of nausea and dizziness, um, even some reports of, uh, of blood clots, um, which they weren't sure were being caused by the pill. But Pincus and Rock just kept pushing, you know, and in part, this is because they were men and they were sexist. Um, in part, it was because they were doctors and doctors tend to be a little arrogant. Um, I was going to say Pincus actually was, he thought that many of the side effects were psychosomatic and he went so far as to completely unethically do some testing to prove that point, right? Yeah, he, he conducted his own sort of uh, double blind study to see if women given placebos would still complain about side effects. And of course, they, they did. Um, they were warned that there might be side effects and they were given a placebo and they, they you know, a, a fairly large number of them still experienced the side effects. But um, the women who were working um, these clinical trials, uh, the doctors and nurses, were telling Pincus, "This is you've got to stop. These these side effects are are really really bad." Um, but Pincus never hesitated for a minute, and um, that's where they uh, once they once they finished doing the work and um, in the in the um, 
mental asylums, they realized they still needed a lot more women. And it just so happened that Pincus went to give a lecture at the University of Puerto Rico. And he realized that this was um, an ideal testing ground because they had American trained doctors and nurses down there. Um, you had birth control clinics all over the island um, that were legal. You know, there was no, there were no laws against uh, birth control in Puerto Rico. And in fact, the eugenics movement had, had really um, made a lot of inroads there already so that women were were, even though it was a, a, a Catholic um, country, um, a lot of uh, women there were, were, were more than willing to, to use birth control. The average family there, the average woman there had, had 7.8 children. So they were in many cases desperate for some kind of form of better birth control. So Pincus had the idea that they could try uh, clinical studies down there and, and avoid a lot of the controversy that they would, that they would face in the United States. That being said, recruitment there didn't start out well either. <laughs> no, it didn't. They began by asking nurses uh, and nursing students at the University of Puerto Rico to, to enter the clinical trials. And the women uh, dropped out almost immediately because of the side effects. And the, the professors even threatened them that their grades would be would be lowered if they didn't stick with this. And, and the women still dropped out. Um, but then um, the, they went into the slums of Puerto Rico where the population problem was so severe and, and they began to find women who were willing um, to endure these side effects because they were the, the side effects were, while, while, um, while certainly uh, serious, were, were not as bad as the, as the threat of another pregnancy for women who already had more children than they could handle. Okay, so those side effects, he, he did take them seriously. They kept working, they kept tweaking the formula, um, and the, the answer, and therefore the pill, uh, ended up being the right combination of, of estrogen and progesterone, correct? Right. It's, it's interesting because Pincus actually went and made a major speech, um, in, at the Planned Parenthood International, uh, conference in Japan and said, we've got it. We've invented the pill. This is going to change the world. Um, but at that point, he really had no idea, uh, what kind of formula the pill would, would, would would have um he knew some kind of progesterone based pill would would work but he didn't he wasn't he was having a hard time getting the getting the com getting just the right compound and um and at that point it had only been tested on about 30 women uh for more than just a few months so it was incredibly um gutsy of him perhaps foolish to go out on a limb like that and to say it it had been done um, so they were still tinkering with, with, with the chemical compound. And just by accident, it, it turned out one of the batches of progesterone, uh, that, that they got from the, from the drug company had been contaminated with just a trace amount of estrogen. And suddenly on that run of the clinical trials, women stopped complaining about the side effects, or at least they didn't complain nearly as much. And, and Pincus was puzzled. Why all of a sudden? Are, are the side effects going away? And he asked um, the, the drug company to look again at this batch of pills they'd sent to make see if there was anything different. And they realized there was this little bit of, of estrogen in there. And he said, well, look, just keep doing that. Send me another batch like that. And it turned out that that's how they they finally settled on the right formula, that um, this, this progesterone pill with a little bit of estrogen helped reduce the, the side effects. And that's essentially the pill that that, that we have today. There are just such ridiculous coincidences in this book, honestly. Yeah, that's true. But and and even you sort of mentioned uh, before the timing of all this was fairly perfect. It was before we were really realizing the the effects of thalidomide, but but also people were starting to realize that overpopulation was becoming a serious problem. That's right. And instead of talking about how this was a, going to be a pill to give women more pleasure in sex, which would not have been um, very compelling, at least um, to, to men who 
would be making some of these decisions, they, they talked more about the effects of unworld population. You know, this was after World War II, and, and there was this great fear that countries were going to turn communist, and that these poor countries, especially in Asia, um, if the population began to grow and poverty um, spread, that uh, that they might be inclined to to turn communist. And, and, and there was a, just a great sense of having of whether we could feed all these new people and and the, so by discussing the, the birth control pill as something that might fight back against the population explosion, it, it gave the it gave it an you know an aura of 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 of, of uh, you know, acceptability. You know, it made it much more um, politically correct. I guess you would say. So instead of talking about this as a sex pill, it became a you know a population control pill. And and that's one of the ways that Sanger again found a way to just. Um, play the right cards to try to get to give this thing every chance of, of approval and acceptance. And, and Pincus as well. That's one of the things I found so interesting about him. He was very much able to, to frame the rationale for the development of the pill differently, depending on who exactly he was talking to. It, it was the population issue for some, but others, it was still the fertility issue because there was some evidence that it was easier to get pregnant after you were on the pill. Yeah, they still honestly believed that it might work as a fertility treatment. That They called it the rock rebound for Dr. John Rock, that after you took the pill for a while, you'd have a better chance of getting pregnant. And, and it was uh, you know, anecdotal evidence at best because they had tested it on so few women, but they really believed it. And they, more importantly, they thought that if they could describe this, if they could advertise this as a, as a pill that worked as, as, as a contraceptive and as a fertility treatment, well, then they'd really be off to the races. They'd have, nobody could argue with it and it would be, uh, you know, it would have a bigger market. And, and um, you know, they were, they were really just trying everything they could to, to, uh, to get this out there and to give it the best chance possible. You really, I do have to point out, your book very much kind of imparts that sense of urgency about this whole situation. It was, it was almost thrilling to read. It's <laughs> Thanks. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm talking with the author of The Birth of the Pill, Jonathan Ike. Okay, so those those multiple rationales uh, came in handy when it was time to take it to the FDA for approval. Now, what was the pill originally approved for? Well, this is one of the other clever um, things that, that Pincus and his team came up with. Instead of asking the FDA to approve the world's first birth control pill in 1956, they filed an application and they got the GD Searle drug company to come along on this and to agree to, to file the, the application. But Searle said, you know, let's, let's be conservative here. Let's not call it, a, you know, a birth control pill. Let's call it um, a pill for the regulation of, of, of the menstrual cycle. Because in effect, that's what it did. It allowed a woman to control her cycle. And, um, well, you know, secondarily, it also, hey, it also happens to allow you to avoid pregnancy. So, but the, the standards would be a lot lower. The, the con- level of controversy would be a lot lower. It wouldn't attract as much attention if they, if they called it something other than a birth control pill. So that's what they did. They filed this application. It was the, at that time, the largest application ever filed. Um, by for to the FDA, um, just they threw tons and tons of paperwork at them, showing them almost you know every woman who had who had tried this thing, and they said we'd like you to approve this for the regulation of, of women who cycle so that they can make their cycles more regular, and um, the FDA took a long time looking at it, and um, and you know they had to be concerned that there that had only been tested on on something like 130 women at that point. I mean it's a tiny tiny clinical trial. 
Um, but Pincus disguised it. He, he instead of talking about the number of women, he he emphasized the number of cycles that had that had been tested. So instead of saying 130 women, he said we've tested this on 1,300 cycles. Oh, that is so much more impressive. Yeah, it sounds good, right? Um, so the FDA agreed to approve this um, on one condition: the the bottle had to carry a warning. The label had to say um, warning. Uh, this prevents pregnancy. And of course, it turned out to be the greatest advertising Searle ever could have dreamed of because now patients and doctors knew exactly what it did and, and everyone prescribed it off label and women began going to their doctors saying, hey, I heard that there's this uh, pill for an irregular menstrual cycle. I really need that. Oh, I've got, uh, I've got 11 kids and, and it, and my menstrual cycle's really irregular. Um, so suddenly hundreds of thousands of women are going to their doctors asking for this. And, 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 and that's so important because it, 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 it you've, You've only had this very skimpy clinical trial, but now hundreds of thousands of women are taking it every day and and really proving that it's that it's safe and um, and a market is being is taking shape that you know that, that doctors are loving it because they're getting more office visits and they're making money on this and the drug companies realizing that they have a potential blockbuster on their hands and and once that happens, it's really there's no turning back. It was such an open secret that that there was even the sense at one point that the Catholic Church might not condemn the use of the pill, right? That's right. It happened so quickly that that, that, that um, the church never really caught up to it. And John Rock um, was lobbying and actually went and met with officials at the Vatican saying, you guys should, should get on board with this because women are taking it anyway. And if you think about it, it's really just a, you know, a more modern form of the, of the rhythm method. And the church had sanctioned the rhythm method. You know, women could have sex when they knew that it was the time of month when they weren't fertile. And, and this pill is really just allowing us to, to control that fertile period. So it's, it's really just an, an, an improvement on the rhythm method. And it was, you know, it was a fun kind of a philosophical, I think it was a flawed philosophical argument, but it was good that he tried it. And, and the, the church actually considered it. Um, the Pope appointed a committee and the committee recommended uh, accepting the birth control pill in the, and the Pope overturned it, over, you know, overruled. But uh, it, it bought them enough time, I think, that Catholic women just decided for themselves, hey, I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm going to go for this. I don't care what the church says. And and that was really a, a huge moment in the, in the history of, of not just the pill and not just women, but the Catholic church as well. Man, okay, so everything's going really well except for that church thing. Um, and then they actually tried to get it applied, or then they actually tried to get it approved for the thing that everyone was already using it for, and then they ran into problems? Well, a little bit, yeah. Um, remember, this is a this is something that's never been done before. It's a, it's a pill for healthy women, and uh, it's a, it's a really a, you know it's the first designer drug in a way. It's meant to change lifestyles. It's meant to give women the freedom to control their lives and um, delay when they become parents, or you know, completely um, decide not to become parents, and 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 that just you know raises a whole bunch of. of interesting ethical questions. So when the drug company Searle goes back and, and Pincus and Rock go back to the FDA and say, remember that, that pill you approved, they were calling it Inovid. Um, remember that, that pill you approved for, for, um, regulating menstrual cycles. Well, it turns out it, it, it really also is a very effective form of birth control. And we'd like to just add an additional use. And so doctors can prescribe it for that. Well, the FDA has a huge decision to make now and they, they there, there, there will be controversy around this. And there's, they suddenly realize that this is something that women might take for years at a time. And, and what do we know about how, about its effects? You know, if, if you take it for, for that long. So they, they, they appoint this, this very young, um, 
doctor who's who's still undergo who's still in school um, and assign him to make the decision of whether to approve the, the pill and and he's really and he's a catholic by the way he's got i can't remember i think 11 children of his own um and he's got to make this decision and um he begins he does something that's really never been done before he takes a survey of of, of gynecologists and, and and experts in the field and asks them what they think and asks them if they've had experience with an ovid and with progesterone and whether they think it's safe and um He's really torn by this because he realizes the the importance of his decision that, that this is going to you know affect the lives of millions of people and and if there is a health risk it's going to be uh, it's going to be devastating but but in the end um, he feels like he has no choice but to approve it that that the, the FDA you know needs to see that it's work that it's effective and it is it is effective um, it would never have been approved by today's standards but by 1950s standards um, they felt like they had no choice but to approve it and and um, and they did and and you could see the changes in 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 american society almost immediately you see in the first year 400,000 women get prescriptions for the pill uh, the year after that it triples and then it triples again and and it, it starts to have these ripple effects really across um, society and you start to see it affecting um, the rates that women go to college, the rates they enter the workforce, um, they, the age at which they start having children. It starts reducing the number of infant deaths, the number of maternal deaths. It's really, it's rare that you see an innovation this big have such a, an almost immediate impact. Well, I'd like to point out that there's only one pill that we call the pill. <laughs> That's right. And there's no such thing as the car or the washing machine. You know, it's, um, and that's because it was so revolutionary, you know, that it didn't even need a name. And, you know, I think in part it's because women, when they went to the doctor's office, weren't sure what to call it. And they were a little nervous about asking for, for birth control. So they just said, could I have that, that, the pill that I've been reading about? And, um, but it, it, it was such a game changer that it didn't even need a name. So just for anyone who's curious, I want everyone to go buy this book, by the way. So Thank you. I'm going to tell you the ending anyway. So <laughs> what happened to these, these four crusaders post pill? They all lived long enough to see that they, that they were right, that they, that this pill really worked and that it really did have the, this, this revolutionary power to change women's lives and to change, um, just human dynamics, how men and women get along, how they, how they reproduce. Um, and they lived long enough to see the Supreme Court decide that um, in the United States that um, women should have the right to birth control and that it was part of their right to, to privacy in Griswold versus Connecticut. Um, so even though Sanger and, and McCormick were very old, both in their in their 80s at this point, um, they they were they were absolutely you know triumphant and and thrilled to see that, that this thing took off and that women um, really took the ball and ran with it. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the book is Catherine McCormick, who's now 90, um, calls her doctor and asks for a prescription for the birth control pill and, and goes to the drugstore to pick it up. And, uh, she just wants to hold it in her hands. She wants to see how it works, that it really, that it really happened, that it, it they really pulled this off. Because I think, you know, when they began in 1950, you know, they, they, they must have realized that this was just an, an incredible long shot, that it would take something close to a miracle to pull this off. And, and, and the fact that they did it, um, was, I think, a huge, um, accomplishment and that they, they were, they were, they lived to see the, the effects of it. Brilliant story, sir. Thanks very much for being here today. Thank you. And that was Jonathan Eig, author of The Birth of the Pill, and we'll link to the book on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. Rochelle will be here to talk about the speculum with Rose Everleth after this. (laughs) 
Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Rose Eveleth is a producer, designer, and writer based in Brooklyn. She switched from studying krill as a scientist to studying scientists who study krill as a journalist. These days, she tries to explain sciencey stuff for places like The Atlantic, BBC Future, TED Education, Nautilus Magazine, Smithsonian Magazine, and the Story Collider podcast, among others. She's the founder and curator of Science Studio, an online collection of the best science multimedia out there. Rose, it's a pleasure to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so you wrote a really fascinating article on the speculum, both the history and the design. Um, And before we jump into that, I was hoping that for those in the audience, and I'm thinking the males in particular who have never seen a speculum, care to attempt to describe it? So it's basically like if you were to take your hand and sort of make like a duck shape and the, the where your fingers are would be inserted into the vagina and then it would sort of open like you were opening your hand to make like, you know, a, a shadow puppet of a duck. Uh, it's kind of like that, only it's made out of either metal or plastic and where your the back of your hand is is a hole so the doctor can see in. And the purpose of it is so that the gynecologist can look in through the vaginal canal and to the cervix and they want to check and either swab the cervix or see what's going on if there's any issues and be able to kind of see inside because um, as everyone knows, vaginas are dark and mysterious and difficult to look at. So it sort of makes it a little bit easier to see what's going on inside the body. That was a most excellent description. You did much better than I could. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so the history of the speculum is actually really fascinating. Um, tell us the speculum story. Yeah, so um, the speculum is really, really old. Uh, they've found early examples that don't look anything like the ones that I just described um, as far back as 130 AD. Galen talked about them sort of in the early days of medicine. Um, They've found examples in Pompeii, and those are these sort of terrifying-looking corkscrew-like devices that no one would ever want inserted into them. Um, But the the sort of the speculum that we think about today really starts around the 1840s, and it starts with a man named Marion Sims. And he worked in Montgomery, Alabama, and he opened up his own private clinic for women um, in Montgomery around 1845. And he was sort of the premier doctor in the area for helping women with sort of women's health issues. Um, And one thing that he saw a lot of was women who go through prolonged childbirth and and women who sort of end up going, being in labor for a long time. And this is the 1840s. So this is before we sort of have a lot of the modern ways that we think about giving birth. Women who go through really long childbirth end up with, sometimes end up with these things called vesicovaginal fistulas, which is basically just a hole in between the vaginal canal and either the anus or the urethra. And that is sort of like obviously a bad thing because you end up with either urine or feces in the vagina, which is not good. You don't want that. Um, But this was before they were really looking into the vagina to see it. And so he was trying to fix this thing that he couldn't really see. Um, And so he was, this was sort of his his life's work was trying to figure out how to fix this. And it's hard to fix something inside the vagina if you can't look into the vagina. So he started um, thinking of ways to do this. And the the first version, the very first one that he, he made was actually not a medical device at all. It was a bent gravy spoon, the handle of a bent gravy spoon. Um, and he sort of had a woman lay on her back with her knees sort of up, up in her, uh, pulled to her chest and he put the gravy spoon in and kind of bent it and was able to see in. Um, from there, he sort of developed this tool. Um, now, 
Sims is very controversial. I don't know if we want to get into that immediately, but he, he did a lot of his work on, on these fistulas on slave women who he sort of kept in his, like, the back of his facility, sort of in the backyard of his hospital. Um, and these were women who were never given anesthesia. Many of them were, he performed surgery on them up to 30 times with no anesthesia and sort of used them as guinea pigs, like human guinea pigs for this, this procedure and got very good at it. And he sort of is to some known as the father of modern gynecology in the United States, but it sort of was built on the backs of these slave women who he was doing all these experiments on. So it's sort of a dark history. And this isn't the only time that the speculum has had some controversy surrounding it. It's actually had some more recent controversy. I'm thinking back to the feminist movement of the 70s. The thing that really interests me about the speculum is that it's such a simple device, really. I mean, it really is just a little duck-billed thing that you click open and look. But it's so powerful. And who gets to use it and who's using it on who is a really important sort of sociological and cultural question about ethics and about who is in control and who has power. So in the 70s, sort of when there was this rise of, of women who were sort of saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, all of these, you know, male doctors are looking at us and sort of surveying us in this way. And we have no idea how to use this tool. Why Why do they get to monopolize this, this sort of ability to look at our, our bodies? So in 1971, a woman named Carol Downer actually started this movement where she was telling women to do their own pelvic exams and go out and buy specula and, and you take a specula and you have a mirror and you look. And I mean, most women had never seen their cervix before. I would probably guess that many women today have not seen their cervix before. Um, and this was controversial. And actually, in 1972, Downer was arrested for practicing medicine without a license. The charges were dropped. And it was actually they, they charged her for this because she was encouraging home remedies and for women to kind of self-diagnose and treat with, you know, putting yogurt in the vagina if they have you know yeast infections to balance the microbiome. She probably didn't know about the microbiome at the time, but that might have been how it was working. Um, but it really was a question of, you know, who gets to use this device and who gets control over what they can see and what they can't see and, and who's in charge of a woman's body. And back in the day, um, the controversy surrounding the speculum I th- seemed really closely linked to the ideas of hysteria at the mm-hmm. time as well. Yeah, in 1850, after sort of Sims introduced this and was sort of promoting it, um, there was a a meeting uh, in London of the Royal Medicine and Chirurgical Society, which I can never say that word. Um, Chirurgical, I think is how you pronounce it. But there was a big medical meeting and they wanted to discuss whether the speculum should be used at all because there were all of these questions that doctors had, you know, which today seem hilarious to me because they're sort of saying, oh, women are going to mistake the pelvic exam as a sexual experience, which like any woman who's ever had a pelvic exam can tell you that is not the case. Um, And they're really worried, right, that if you look at the vagina or if you expose the vagina in this way, you're opening a woman up to, you know, impure thoughts or to right hysteria. Before the speculum, I mean, it really wasn't even, it wasn't that they were even looking at the genitals. The doctor, male doctors were not supposed to look at the females, at the female genitals. They were actually supposed to do the exam just by feel. So there are these really hilarious illustrations in early medical textbooks where they have a woman who will be, you know, like standing very nonchalantly kind of with her arms crossed. And there's a man, a male doctor kneeling in front of her with his arm reaching up under her skirts, under all the skirts, and looking away because he was supposed to make it very clear to her that he was not looking at her vagina. So either they were supposed to, this was the instruction, they were either supposed to look away to make it clear, I'm looking off into the distance, I'm not looking at you, or maintain eye contact the entire time so that it's very clear to her that he's not, you know, looking at her vagina. Either way, he's just sort of feeling around in there, you know, know, trying to figure out what's going on. And so the idea of even looking at the vagina was very controversial in, in the 18 
1950s. And there were a lot of people who said, you know, that it was going to turn women into right, these sex crazed heathen people, um, which of course has has not happened. Um, but but it was really a, a worry that they had. They thought they were going to turn into prostitutes. Um, and then, you know, doctors were going to be complicit in basically destroying this sort of generation of women. It's really fascinating because in the article, you talk about this idea of the speculum uh, being a sexual object, but also that it sort of medicalized parts of uh, women's medicine that had never previously been medicalized. I'm thinking the childbirthing process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you see a very similar thing happening with forceps. Um, This idea that for a long time, childbirth was uh, something that women handled, that midwives handled. It wasn't a medical question. And as soon as, you know, doctors started thinking about it, they thought, oh, well, you know, this should be our realm. But in order for something to be sort of taken away from midwives and, and sort of pushed over to doctors, there needed to be sort of science, there needed to be tools, there needed to be these devices that only doctors could use. And there had to be this equipment and procedural kind of thing. And so, I mean, you see this with forceps, they developed forceps to pull the baby out. Um, and and as soon as that happened, sort of midwifery became less of a, of a, of a common practice and, and birthing started to become more medicalized. And in many ways, you sort of see this with the speculum too. You see people, you see this trend of, you know, something that is a women's health issue being handled by women turning into a medicalized thing. And now it's, it's in many ways, it's good. You know, doctors do know things that, you know, non-trained doctors don't. And, and you know, Sims and the speculum for all of its sort of um, weird power dynamics and and racist history has helped women and has has helped them understand what's going on inside the vagina and treat things and, and you know, close up these fistulas, which were really problematic. Um, but at the same time, right, like when you medicalize something, you often push away another thing that is maybe valuable, which is sort of the insight that women have into what having a woman's body is like. The other really interesting thing about the speculum is that there haven't really been any design changes or really significant design improvements uh, since it was first created. It's pretty much remained the same. If you're a woman, you hear a lot about the speculum and it's not the most pleasant thing. You know, no one really enjoys going to get a pelvic exam. And, you know, when I started looking into it, I thought, wow, you know, this has not changed since 1845. I mean, there have been some changes, right? It's now made of plastic mostly. Most mostly use plastic. There are light sources that kind of help you look in, but the fundamental design isn't that different. And, you know, to me, as someone who writes about technology and, you know, thinks about technology and, and change a lot, I sort of assumed that, you, you know, it should be changed. That Why hasn't this been updated? And as I was working on this and looking at a lot of these alternate designs, because there have been a lot of alternate designs proposed, but none of them have really caught on. Um, one of them being, you know, there's a, a type that is in, it's called an inflatable specula. And basically, it's like a tampon-sized device that you would insert into the vagina and then inflate. So it would sort of press equally on all sides of the vagina. And and there are a couple of other kind of examples of, of designs that people have thought about, and none of them have caught on. And if you ask the people who, dev- who designed those things why they haven't caught on, they'll say, oh, you know, doctors are fear change, or, you know, they didn't give it a chance. But if you ask doctors, and some of them who, who tried these that I talked to said, you know, actually, the speculum works totally fine, and it doesn't really need an update. And that's sort of like my personal bias towards thinking that old things must need to be reinvented, when in fact, often they work totally fine. 
Okay, so just quickly, many women dread the semi-annual pelvic exam. Um, is it because of the speculum, or do we mostly just blame the speculum? I think we mostly blame the speculum. I do think there can be issues with the speculum. If you have a doctor who is, you know, not communicative, you don't really know what's going on, and a lot of it does come down to it's this unfamiliar thing. It's this thing that they pull out of a drawer. It's cold. You can't see what's happening. It's uncomfortable. It's never going to be comfortable. It's not comfortable to forcibly open an orifice like that. And the speculum can can pinch the cervix if they're using the wrong size. So there can be legitimate sort of comfort issues there. But I do think most of it is that it's awkward. We don't like going to the doctor in general. And if you don't have a good relationship with your doctor, then it's really just that going to the gynecologist is often not the most fun thing in general. And we tend to want to blame something. And it's easy to blame the speculum because it's sort of this obvious clanky sort of torture-like looking device. So definitely, we don't have to worry about sexually or impure thoughts when uh, going to a pelvic exam. (laughs) I don't think so. I think we're safe. (laughs) Rose, thanks so much for being here and for the really fascinating article. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to learn more about Rose Eveleth, you can start at roseeveleth.com. And we'll include that link and a link to her full speculum article in the show notes for today's episode on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. And as always, we'd love for you to stay in touch with us on our Twitter account or our Facebook account. And you can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher, where you can subscribe to the show, listen to past episodes, and leave a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. We'll be right back.